My name's Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to Ghoul Reports. <laughs> <laughs> the goblin energy, man. The goblin energy. I'm, I'm so with the, it. I'm here for the goblin energy. Like, <laughs> if you've been here for a while and you've been listening through our menagerie of different spooky attempts and sounds <laughs> with our intros, then we appreciate you. Thanks for putting up with us. <laughs> That was a really good try, though. Yeah, no, totally. A for effort, A for effort. So, it's giving Troll Under the Bridge. <laughs> uh, she's giving Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> but hi, everybody. We are happy to be here today. We hope you're having a good week, a good day, like we said last week. Just a good life. Just a good life. We really hope you're having a good life. <laughs> Things have been pretty good for us, you know, pretty stable, pretty smooth. Uh, yeah. Don't really have a whole lot to really complain about. I'm done moving finally. Life is good in the new house. Yes. I'm just, you know, I don't really have a whole lot to complain about. It's nice. <laughs> and I hope the same holds true for all of you. For well, sure. I do have an announcement today. And um, last week I covered Kendrick Johnson. And it did not go over well um, because there was some misinformation going on. Mm-hmm. And our gracious listeners, thank you guys so much for correcting me on my mistake and even more so thank you for not being like an asshole about it like we appreciate <laughs> that because we probably would have cried for like days but uh yeah totally we appreciate the the civility yeah it. so it was nice um i do want to say one thing and it is not to diminish my upcoming apology there is a reason why my episode wasn't up to standards and i've been trying to kind of like just not advertise it, just kind of not put it out there. But I've been going through some health issues and a lot of that took the forefront because I was going back and forth to the hospital, but it is now under control. I've got a handle on things and it is a new start for me, especially where these cases are concerned because Kendrick Johnson deserves for his story to be told accurately absolutely and And you know that's the last thing we want to do too like i don't mean to cut you off but our show is very important to us you know we more than understand that these are more than just stories these are real stories that happen to real people that affect real people and the last thing we want to do is to misinform anyone the last thing we want to do is not give the care necessary to these stories and these cases they they deserve to be told in an accurate and respectful manner. And that's exactly. and that's the standard that we uphold for ourselves, you know. And like Ray said, not trying to diminish taking accountability. And I also take accountability because, you know, it's this is our show. So I feel like the blame falls on both of us a little bit to share in it. But I just want to give that reassurance. You know, it is important to us and we care about what you have to say. And we are human unfortunately and <laughs> and we we do have you know down times and we have you know days where we're just not on our game and that is our fault and you know doing a show like this consistency is key and at the end of the day it doesn't really matter to a degree what we're going through like we have work to do and there's a standard that we uphold with our work right. that we uphold with our work excuse me let me reword that um so yeah 
you know, thank you for listening and thanks for the constructive criticism. We just want to more so acknowledge just how seriously we take it and we want it and we want to acknowledge, you know, that we hear you and we listen to you and we acknowledge that our show wouldn't be anything without the people that listen to us, you know, so we care about not only giving you the best content, but the most respectful and accurate and thorough content. Right. So that's where I basically want to start my apology um, because Kendrick's case, like it does deserve to be accurately told because of the nature of the case. And I did tell everyone, um, you know, the last week that this is a very controversial case and there's many emotions behind it. But I'm so glad that it was pointed out that I made a mistake because the further I dove into the case and I'm still doing a deep dive, mm-hmm. like as we're recording this and there there was a lot that I missed. There was a lot that I didn't. I didn't think to ask that question myself because I had these other things kind of clouding, you know, what was going on upstairs. But yeah, totally, totally. um, I I do want to say that that is obviously that is not like me. Y'all listened to our episodes. You've seen us grow. You've heard us throughout the past 14 weeks. Yeah, 14 weeks. Yeah, so um, you guys know that that's not normally like me, and I do apologize. But but I will revisit the Kendrick Johnson case uh, next week with much more information, much more detail. Um, I'm even getting right down to the detail of the, the city that it comes out of. Like, what is what is it like there? Yeah, totally. So um, that way you can get an idea of the scope of how much I just missed Yeah, how much I missed and how much I really didn't stop to think about. So I'm very happy that uh, you guys spoke up and said something. And we will definitely, like Ray just said next week, um, our Thursday upload will be a revisit of the Kendrick Johnson case. And it will definitely be up to our standard and we will do everything we can to, you know, uphold that. We just wanted to say we, we appreciate the listening and the constructive criticism and you know we care yes we do this is our baby and you know that makes you guys our babies exactly whether you like it or not you're all our babies (laughs) whether you like it or not i'm gonna say it again you are all our babies (laughs) so the last thing that i'm gonna say on it is that we did take the kendrick episode down the same day that you guys said something Uh, We discussed it throughout the day, and we just decided that it was best to go ahead and remove that episode. So if you're looking for it to try to listen to it, um, that's why you can't find it. We wanted to prevent any further misinformation being put out there. So we did take that down. Absolutely. And um, my final thoughts on this is I'm sorry I was not at my best, but I am back. I am back, and things are good. and we love you. We love you. <laughs> so I am really excited to get into your case. So let's do this. So for my case this week, it's actually, I don't even have a word for it. It's its definitely a piece of work. Okay. I actually ended up changing my case last minute because oh, I know no. if you remember I I had texted you like a few days ago and I was like I'm stuck between these two cases 
I don't know what to do. I kind of want you to pick it out for me. So yeah. you picked one. Well, I ended up completely not doing it. Okay. I, I've done something completely different. Is there and a reason why? Yes. Because as I was researching the case that I was initially going to cover for this week, mm-hmm. I found like a, I can't remember the name of the YouTube channel that um, I found, but there was a, an episode that they had about this case and it's one that I had never heard of and it it intrigued me. So I watched it and as I got down the rabbit hole, it just consumed me. Oh, wow. Like we love a good consuming. (laughs) We love a a good consuming. But uh, yeah, this one is crazy. And the minute that I learned about it, I was like, oh, this is it. Like this has to be the one that I cover this week. So yeah, the case that I will be doing for this episode it is the case of the Guy family. Okay. And holy shit, like, hold on to your assholes. That's my that's my famous <laughs> quote at the beginning of my episodes. Um, but for the case of the Guy family, I'm going to take us to November of 2016. More specifically, Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, boy. It was for sure a celebratory time. You know, you got turkey screaming and whatnot, <laughs> lots of potatoes, mac and cheese. Greens, beans, tomatoes, tomatoes. Yeah, all of the good stuff. Like, everybody's celebrating. It's almost turkey day. Well, on this particular Thanksgiving, a man by the name of Joel Guy Sr. and his wife, a woman named Lisa, they were getting their whole family together to celebrate the holiday. But also, this one in particular was a little more special Because this would be the last Thanksgiving that Joel and Lisa would be celebrating in their home located in Knoxville, Tennessee. Oh, Lord. Yeah, they had recently put their house on the market and they had plans to move about 70 to 75 miles northeast to another town in Tennessee called Sagoinsville. And I apologize if I butchered that. Like when I looked up the spelling for Sagoinsville, there's an R in it, but... From everything that I've heard of people pronouncing it, it's mm. Sagoinsville. Yeah. So if you're from Tennessee. That sounds about right. Yeah. I lived in um, Kingsport. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, which totally is like Upper that. Eastern. Yeah. Yeah. So if any of you are from Tennessee, if I butchered that pronunciation, I'm sorry. But yeah, um, Joel and Lisa had plans to move to Sagoinsville. A little bit of time before this Thanksgiving, and I'm not sure exactly how long before, but Joel Sr.'s mother had passed away. And the plan was for him and his wife, Lisa, to sell their house and then purchase Joel's mother's house. Joel also had siblings and other extended family in Sagoinsville. So this whole thing was a very exciting event on a number of levels for Mm -hmm. the couple. The time frame that they were aiming for was to have the move to Sagoinsville done by Christmas of that year. Okay. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to give like that little bit of info as to why Joel and Lisa were moving. But... A little bit of background on Joel and Lisa themselves. They had gotten married in 1985, and they stayed in Louisiana for a bit of time before they moved to Tennessee together. Okay. Joel Guy Sr. had been married once before to a woman named Patricia, and they had three daughters together. Their names were Michelle, Angela, and Shandice, or Shandice, but I believe it's Shandice. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that, but... Uh, After a few years, Joel divorced Patricia, and then he went to eventually marry Lisa. Okay. Joel and Lisa ended up having one son together. Uh, He was born on March 13th, 1988, and he was named after his father, deeming him Joel Guy Jr. Okay. Now, Joel had married Lisa when his three daughters were very young, so Lisa really stepped up to that role of being a mother to them. She treated them as if they were her own. 
Joel's kids really grew to love Lisa, and Lisa grew to love them just as much. Like, they got extremely Aww. close. And then... Love that. Yeah, and then Joel Guy Jr. came into the picture, and everyone really seemed to get along. Lisa was a fantastic mother, a fantastic wife. She would always have supper on the table when Joel would get home from work. She was always greeting him at the door, being excited to see him and stuff. She also made it a point to keep the cabinet stocked with everyone's favorite foods and snacks. Like, she was a woman that truly loved her family. Even though this was a blended family, too, a lot of the negative things that can potentially come out of that situation, it didn't really seem to exist nor apply here whatsoever. Joel and Lisa were extremely loving and dedicated parents. All of Joel's daughters often tell of how much they loved their dad and Lisa. Uh, Michelle, one of Joel's daughters, actually looked up to Lisa and loved her so much so that... When she got married, she had her wedding band designed as a replica of Lisa's. Oh, wow. Like, it's precious. Like, Lisa very, very much so was pretty much a second mom to these kids. They all had an incredibly close and loving dynamic. Now, Joel Jr., their son, he was a bit different from everyone else for sure. Not saying that that's a bad thing because <laughs> Lord knows if you, look, <laughs> if you looked at my family and then looked at me... <laughs> you would think something was wrong, but uh, yeah, he was. Same goes here. <laughs> he was really reclusive and quiet. He did have a few friends growing up, nothing really noteworthy to put there, although he did seem to cling to one friend in particular, though, that he was friends with on and off his whole life. He was a kid by the name of Michael McCracken. And if I'm not, <laughs> I thought the same thing. Release the McCracken. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Michael later went on to be Joel Jr.'s roommate. But yeah, anyways. Joel Jr.'s three half-sisters went on to say that looking back on things, that they actually didn't really have any memories with their half-brother, mainly because whenever they would be visiting or there would be family events happening or things like that, Joel Jr. would either not show up at all or he would just be locked up in his room away from everyone. He always tended to keep to himself, and mm. he did not want to socialize in any capacity. Highly reclusive, as I said. Now, with all that being said, this next segment of the story will start to make a bit more sense. We can go back to the Thanksgiving weekend of 2016. Not only did Joel Jr. show up, but he was actually extremely happy and also extremely outgoing, which, given the info that I just gave about him, that's a little weird. And everyone else also found this to be a little weird, too, understandably so. This drastic and sudden change of Joel Jr.'s disposition was definitely something to note, for sure. But I mean, everyone was also kind of thinking, well, like, damn, okay, maybe he's in a better place. And this is the start of him actually being involved and present with all of us, you know. So even though it was all a little bit weird, it was nonetheless welcomed by everyone. Joel Jr. just showed up that Wednesday before the Thanksgiving weekend ready for some family time all of a sudden. I don't know, man. Like, I would be really sketch at that point. <laughs> like, just really sketched out. It's definitely a little weird. Like, you know, uh, it's time to go. <laughs> Joel Jr., even at one point, he took out some boxes of his old childhood toys and, like, you know, playthings and whatever, and he was showing everything to his nephews, and he was even giving a lot of these toys away to his nephews as well. Oh, he yeah. Was just, nope, nope. He was I'm going to head out. Yeah. I'm going to head out. <laughs> he was giving away all of his old things. So, I mean, again, I mean, yeah, it was a little weird, but everyone was kind of welcoming of this. They were like, well, okay, maybe he's actually going to start spending time with the family. Maybe this is him trying to, you know integrate a little bit more like who knows everybody even though it was a little strange i guess more so 
everyone was happy to kind of have him present because if you remember from the info I gave, he did not socialize at all. And it was so severe that his stepsisters literally don't really have a lot of memories with him. That's how reclusive he was. Yeah, I, I I just think that, you know, if if someone that you know, like Gage, I know you, you're an introvert, you like being in your bedroom, and if you just all of a sudden change, and you're like, oh, let's go to a bar, and you have no problems walking through Walmart and stuff like that, and I'm just like... <laughs> You'd be like, either something's wrong, or you've got a hold of some good shit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) All right. So, moving on. Thanksgiving went really, really well, it seemed. Everyone sat around and enjoyed their meal together. They laughed, talked, cut up. You know, things just went really, really well. Everyone had a good time. A few hours after the dinner, Joel Sr.'s three daughters and their children headed out to go home. Joel Jr. had plans to stay an extra night with his parents because he wasn't ready to make the nine-hour drive back to his apartment in Baton Rouge, Louisiana that night. So he was going to stay an extra day and then make the trek back home the next day. Okay. Now, for a wee bit more background before the story progresses, like, just bear with me, kids. We got a a lot of path to trek here. (laughs) But uh, I know it's going to seem like I'm... Roll your sleeves up. Roll your sleeves up. It's going to seem like I'm all over the place with this episode, and I promise I'm not trying to do that. I just, I have it formatted to where I feel like this case is easier to understand if I tell, or as I tell bits of the story, Mm -hmm. and then give a little bit of background info, like, in little, I don't know how to... I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I'm probably not trying to confuse It's kind of like side notes. So you're telling yeah, the main story, but I'm, there's side notes If to I it. tell bits of the story and then give little bits of context into mm-hmm. the story, like for this particular case, I don't know. Just as I was writing my episode and taking notes, I just I felt like this was the easiest way for me to understand it and yeah. fully grasp it. So that's the way that I wanted okay, to share cool. it. So just, just bear with me. Like I said before, and you said, roll your sleeves up. Roll your there's sleeves a up. lot of path to trip, kids. So... <laughs> Do you have your exit, buddy? (laughs) Joel Jr. had moved to Louisiana in high school, actually. He had hopes of studying to become a plastic surgeon, and he was going to attend Louisiana State University in order to do so. Wow. However, he withdrew from the university just one year prior to this Thanksgiving holiday in 2015. Mm. Joel Jr. also attended the Louisiana School for Math, Science, and the Arts during his last two years of high school, which... That school in particular, it's noted as a school for exceptionally gifted students. Oh, so we're dealing with geniuses here. Yeah, yeah. The kid's definitely smart. Like, there's there's no there's no debating that. Uh, Joel Jr. did really well in high school, too. Immediately after graduating in 2006, he also went to the George Washington University in D.C., where he only spent one semester before he withdrew. Wow. So, yeah, you're starting to see this. This pattern emerged with Joel Jr. The kid's very clearly smart, as I said. There's there's no debating that. But it's like when he got to college and he was trying to do all of these different things, it just seems like he got lost, mm-hmm. I guess would be the right word. He just seemed to be completely absent of direction. He literally, like, let it sink in when I say this. He spent a total of nine years in and out of various colleges, and he had nothing to show for it. Wow. Yeah, nine years. Like, I couldn't imagine. So having, like, problems finishing what he started kind of thing. Pretty much. He's just going all over the place, and then here we are, nine years. I know I've said it a hundred times. Take a shot every time I say nine years, but that's a long time to be in school and to literally have nothing to show for it. Yeah, that's sad. And what gives 
this situation a bit more of a sting, in my opinion, is that it wasn't Joel Jr.'s own money that was being shelled out for all of this. Oh. His parents. Was it daddy's money? His parents literally funded everything no, for I'll Joel see, Jr. Nah. No, mm-hmm. literally, like everything. Wow. Now, listen, Joel Jr. never, ever, for one day, worked in his life. His parents were paying for his school entirely. They were also fully paying for that nice-ass apartment in Baton Rouge that he had. Oh, my God. Joel Jr.'s half-sister, Angela, said herself that the only reason that their mother, Lisa, worked a job and worked as hard as she did was just so she could turn over her entire paycheck to Joel Jr. to support him. Oh, my. Let that sink in. This woman worked a full-time job never keeping a penny of the money for herself. She was working this job just so she could give her paycheck to her grown-ass son. That makes me so mad. Yeah, she was paying for his clothes, his car, his gas, his household bills, his schooling, his food, his everything. Joel Jr. did not do anything for himself. And Joel Sr., his father who was definitely a pretty successful guy. He worked as an engineering designer for a company called Alstom. He would also continually give his son money. But at one point, he kind of just hit the slope of just being at his wits end with it, and he stopped funding Joel Jr. Long, Good for him. Yeah, he stopped funding his son long before Lisa did. This whole situation with Joel Jr.'s parents literally funding every single aspect of his life was about to come to a screeching halt, though. Around Thanksgiving of 2016, Joel Sr. actually got laid off from his engineering designer job. Oh, man. He was 61 years old at that time. And Lisa was... That's retirement age. Exactly. And Lisa was 55. So, as you just said, Joel Sr. actually started talking to Lisa about retirement. Okay. He was saying to Lisa that, you know, they were getting older. They had more than definitely worked their asses off to take care of their family. He told Lisa that there was not even a reason for her to work anyways because she was just handing over her money to their son. So, like, he was like, you know, Lisa, why don't we retire together? Like, we deserve this. We're right. ready for this. You know, we've worked. We've provided. Like, right. they, they, they're on that vibe. And that's more than a fucking valid thing, too. It's like... I've said, and you, you know, I'm going to sound repetitive. That's my thing. I don't care. Joel and Lisa literally had worked for their family over so many years, like their whole life. They provided so much for everyone, especially Joel Jr. They were really hitting that point of just wanting to live their life carefree. They wanted to be together. They wanted to live out the rest of their lives with their kids and their grandkids. And they totally deserved every bit of that. Goals. So Joel Sr. and Lisa, they started having more serious conversations about this idea. They start figuring and budgeting every last penny that they would need in order to retire. Their budget even included beer and cigarettes, which it's like, hell yeah. You know, we we stay in a good budget on this podcast. Like, they had it together. Joel Sr. and Lisa came to the conclusion that they indeed could retire in full with the amount of money that the two of them had at that point. Oh, wow. But in order for them to be able to do this, they had to completely stop funding Joel Jr.'s lifestyle, which 
I cannot blame them for that. And let me mention, Good for them, at though. this point in time, Joel Jr. was 28 years old. Oh, and hell he, no. And he had never worked a day in his life for Mm-mm. anything. Like, hell for no. anything. Mm-mm. So Joel Sr. and Lisa start telling the family of their plans. Joel Sr. tells his sisters, his daughters, everyone that him and Lisa were going to retire together. They were going to move to Segoinsville to be closer with their family. And everyone was just over the moon for them. Like everyone was 100% happy and in support of this plan. Like everyone. Now, Joel Sr. and Lisa had one more person to tell their plan to. And that was their son, Joel Guy Jr. The original idea was that Lisa and Joel Sr. were going to have this conversation with him. You know, they were going to break the news to him or whatever a little bit before or maybe a little after Christmas. I was going to say, not not at the Thanksgiving dinner table, baby. <laughs> not at the dinner table. <laughs> yeah, the, the original idea was going to be, I think, a little bit before or after Christmas. Okay. I don't think they wanted to break that to him on the holiday, you know, to avoid any kind of backlash. Yeah. I, I think they were just trying to be safe with it, but... <laughs> I think when you put things together in this case, it becomes obvious that the news got relayed to Joel Guy Jr. before Thanksgiving weekend of 2016, which that would explain why he showed up out of nowhere, just ready for family time. As I talked about earlier, it just, I mean, it makes sense. You you start seeing an image being painted here. Mm -hmm. I don't like it. (laughs) This is a different vibe. Reassure me of the vibes now. (laughs) (laughs) So... Now back to where we left off earlier after the Thanksgiving dinner. Things went super smoothly. As I said, Joel Sr.'s three daughters and their children all packed up to head home later that evening. And if you remember me saying, Joel Jr. had plans to stay an extra day and night with his parents because he didn't want to make that nine-hour drive back to Baton Rouge. So that following Monday after Thanksgiving kind of turned out to be a little strange. Lisa worked for a company called Jacobs Engineering, and she was an accounts administrator in the human resources department. Now, we see this kind of phenomenon that I'm about to speak about. Uh, We see it a lot in some of these cases, especially ones that me and you have covered. But, you know, Lisa was an extremely reliable employee. She never missed a day. She was never late. Oh, God. She never did the no call, no show thing. She was on her toes constantly with her job. And even when she would have a day off or something would happen, Lisa was the kind of employee that she would always call like way ahead of time. Oh, God, anxiety. She was always at work when she needed to be like she was that kind of person. So, you know, keep that in mind. On that Monday, Lisa's boss, a woman named Jennifer, whom, let me add, got along great with Lisa and vice versa. They definitely were very, very close, Lisa Mm. and her boss. Jennifer was waiting for Lisa to come in and work her shift that day. Five minutes pass uh, after the time that Lisa was supposed to be there, and then 10 minutes, and then 15 minutes. And Jennifer started getting extremely worried because this was obviously very, very out of character for Lisa. And it goes to show the kind of worker that, that Lisa was. You know, you have some bosses where... I guess someone could be like 30 minutes late and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, they're going to show up. That's just them. But then in this situation, Jennifer starts getting like alarmed after just 15 minutes Oh wow! after the time that Lisa was supposed to be there. So that further tells of how on time and how reliable she yeah. was, like she wasn't late at all. So Jennifer starts getting very worried. She decides to call Lisa. The phone would ring and ring and eventually she would just get sent to voicemail. So Jennifer tries calling a few more times and texting, but getting the same result. And now she's steadily starting to panic a little more. 
After calling and texting Lisa a few times, Jennifer then decides to call Joel Sr., her husband, to see if maybe she can get in touch with him to see what's going on, and the same thing happens. No replies through any of the text, and her calls are just getting sent to voicemail. Oh. Now, another thing on Jennifer's mind at this point that's kind of intensifying the panic is that a couple of co-workers and Jennifer all had plans that day to take Lisa out for dinner. They were going to be celebrating her retirement. Okay. Lisa would not have missed that. You of know, course like not. Lisa was excited to go to dinner with everyone. This was a very happy time in her life. She would not have missed it. So all of this just is not looking good. Jennifer's definitely having some increasing anxiety. She's not getting any answers from everyone. She knows that Lisa just under no circumstance would, would miss a company lunch to celebrate her retirement with Joel. All of it's just fucking weird. So Jennifer decided in that moment to call the police and she's definitely feeling nervous. She feels like something definitely isn't right. So she calls 911 and she asks if the police can do a wellness check on Lisa. Okay. So the police agree. And the first wellness check doesn't really show anything out of the ordinary. Lisa and Joel senior's house looked okay from the outside Nothing weird or sketch happening, so they contact Jennifer back and they let her know that, you know, hey, things look good, you know, uh, we didn't get an answer when we knocked out the door, but, you know, nothing looks out of place, everything seems to be fine. All right. So Jennifer's kind of like, well, okay, I still don't really have the best feeling about this, but whatever. So she continues for a little bit trying to get a hold of Lisa through calls and more text, and she's still getting no answer. So there comes a point where Jennifer is just like, okay, no, this actually is not good. Something has definitely happened. So she calls the police a second time to ask if they could please go to the house again, doing a second wellness check. She's saying that she just cannot shake how weird this is. She's like, something has to be wrong. I need right. you to listen to me. This does not happen. Also at this point, Joel Sr.'s daughters were also getting worried because they had been trying to get a hold of their dad all day that day with no response. So, oh, yeah, God. everyone is kind of panicking from this situation. Everyone is just starting to get more and more anxious. So, oh, my stomach. A detective by the name of Jeremy McCord, as well as the cop that did the first wellness check, his name is Officer Stephen Ballard, they were both tasked with going and checking the guy residents for a second wellness check. Wait, wait, wait. So could you say that they were going to put a McCord on the McCracken? I can't stand you. Why? <laughs> a McCord on the McCracken. Okay, I'm McCord sorry. McCord on the McCracken. Continue. Say that five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. Jeremy reported that the minute that he got to the house, that he just kind of felt this really overwhelming, ominous feeling. He said that nothing on the outside looked wrong, but he could just, like, feel it. Right. Like, he said that the atmosphere was literally just weird. Like, you could literally feel it in the air. Oh, wow. Both Lisa's and Joel Sr.'s cars were parked in the driveway, which those were the only two vehicles that they had. And there was no answer at the door when Jeremy knocked. So, not looking good. Right. Definitely not looking good. Jeremy also noticed a for sale sign outside of the home because, you know, if you remember me saying, Joel Sr. and Lisa had been planning to move to Sigoinsville soon. Right. So they had their house up for sale. So Jeremy's like, okay, maybe that means there's like a lockbox with a key or like something, maybe a code of some sort to get into the home. But there was nothing. There was no lockbox to be found anywhere. Jeremy and this other officer that was with him, Stephen, they both took note that the doorknob on the front door did not match at all to the deadbolt that was above it. And then there was also like scratches all around the metal part of the doorknob. So it's like, 
whoever installed this did a piss poor job. Like, <laughs> piss poor job. So. Someone didn't check with their dad who works <laughs> at Home Depot to tell you how to install this shit. I'm telling you, so it's, you know, suspicious. Right. So Jeremy actually calls the real estate office and he speaks to a real estate agent. And Jeremy is asking if there's a lockbox anywhere. Or like I said, maybe even like a combination code of some sort to get right. into the home. And this agent said that they're 100% should be a lockbox by the front door, which weird because there was, you know, there wasn't one. All right. This real estate agent told Jeremy that if he couldn't find the lockbox, then he should try looking in Lisa's or Joel's cars, maybe to see if there was a garage opener. So Jeremy and Steven, they're trying their best to find a way into the home without breaking into it. You know, like uh -huh. that's totally like a last resort kind of thing. So they head to the back of the house to see if maybe there's a back door or a window they could gain entry through, you know, anything. And when they got to the back of the house, they found the reason that the front doorknob looked so strange. They found that the doorknob from the back door had been removed and installed onto the front door. So, yeah, the back door what? didn't have a doorknob on it, just a hole. What? So when Jeremy went to peek through the hole to see into the house... He stated that he could immediately smell a very strong chemical odor, as well as feeling heat coming from inside the house. He also noted that he could see, through this knob hole, bagged groceries. Like, they wow. were, yeah, there were groceries sitting in the front foyer area. They were all in bags. And it was groceries that someone wouldn't leave setting out, like, like perishable, perishable items. Yeah, yeah, like milk. Um, I believe there was some ice cream there, too, you know. Things that you just wouldn't leave sitting out for long. These groceries were just bagged sitting in the front foyer on yeah. the floor. So after seeing all of this, Jeremy and Steven are like, okay, there's definitely something not right here. We have to get into this house. So they take the advice from the real estate agent uh, and they look in one of the two cars in the driveway to see if they could find a garage opener. And luckily, Lisa's car had the garage opener in it. So they got it. They opened the garage and they went into the home entering through the garage door. As Jeremy and Officer Stephen Ballard make their way into the home, Jeremy stated that the humidity inside was unbearable. Like, it was oh, no. so hot. Jeremy also stated that the presence of chemical odors was so strong inside the house that it literally made the skin on his forehead tingle and, like, burn a little oh bit. Oh, my God. Jeremy also noticed that both the stove and the oven were on, and a rather large soup pot was sitting on the stove. Now, let me say, if this were me, I would have been terrified that something was literally going to, like, blow up in this house. Like, the intense heat and humidity, oh chemical odors so strong that it literally irritates your skin. Like, that sounds like an explosion of some sort waiting to happen. I guess I'm just kind of wanting to note my current level of anxiety at this point oh, in the story. Like, because, oh, like, my God. Like, I am I, so uncomfortable. I would have made, like, a Dairy Queen ice cream cone and dipped. <laughs> <laughs> you hear me? Like, I would have dipped. Like, bye. Sorry. Nope. Not for me. It ain't going to be me. So, yeah. Just, Can't just, be me. <laughs> just, just stating my anxiety. This would have absolutely scared the shit out of me. Right. So, Jeremy and Steve continue on with this welfare check, regardless of all these terrifying circumstances. You know, kudos to them. But <laughs> Jeremy walked by the thermostat that was downstairs, and he noticed that it was set to 90 degrees. Oh. Yeah, 90 degrees. So, this picture is not getting any better. Not Steve, at all. Steve and Jeremy are like, okay, like, seriously, what the fuck is going on here? Like... 
the stove and the oven are cranked up. There's a giant pot on the stove. The house is cooking because it's set to 90 degrees and our skin is burning because of chemicals. Like something is seriously wrong. Right. And even without like all of that, if you are looking through a tiny door knob, like a knob knob hole, a knob hole, if you are looking through a tiny hole, and you are feeling heat and you are smelling chemicals. If you have not figured out that something is wrong by that point, then something is wrong with you. <laughs> because what what the hell? That's what I'm saying. Like, really, for real, kudos to these investigators because, like, they trekked on. They they trekked through this shit. They, they oh, definitely God. did. So, you know, I mean, I give, I give the uh, praise where it's needed. Right. So the two head upstairs... Which, it's even hotter up there because heat rises and all. It was 96 degrees upstairs. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, doesn't that make you feel like you're suffocating just thinking about it? I mean, regular day in Georgia. Why not? (laughs) Oh, no shit. As they head up the stairs, the scene is progressively getting more and more unnerving. Halfway up, they hear a dog barking and whining. Later, we found out that the poor thing had been locked inside the laundry room with no food, no water, and with the house almost being at 100 degrees. Oh, my God. And there's no telling how long he was in there either before he was found. It's incredible that this poor dog did not die. Okay. Seriously. T- taking out my plugs, who do I need to fight? Because, <laughs> right, like, right, what? Right. You're really? Gonna, you're you're going to have that moment a lot with this oh case. My it is God. absolutely enraging. Okay. This case is enraging. When Jeremy and Stephen got to the top of the stairs, though, they are both absolutely horrified. They see blood splattered literally all over the walls. There are several blood stains all over the carpet in various areas. And there's also a pile of what seems to be women's clothing with, like, scissors next to them. And the clothes definitely looked like they had been, like, cut up. Okay. In the doorway of one of the rooms off the hallway, Jeremy and Stephen found something spine-chilling. Something... That would immediately make them run outside to call for backup and to report the home of Joel Sr. and Lisa Guy as a crime scene. And probably throw up while you're at it. Yeah, no, definitely. Jeremy and Officer Stephen Ballard found a pair of severed hands that looked as if they belonged to a man. Like literal severed man hands. (laughs) Yeah. Severed man hands. Severed Man hands. I just felt like uh, llamas with hats. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, Carl, Carl well, that uh, kills people. Uh, I stabbed him 37 times in the chest and then ate his hands. <laughs> you know, uh, llamas with hats don't sue us, please. But uh, anyways, uh, as I said just a short second ago, this discovery of the severed hands made Stephen and Jeremy literally run out of the house. They called for backup and immediately reported the house as a crime scene. More officers in the forensic unit were very quickly dispatched to the home. And get this shit. As all of this chaos is unfolding in the front lawn, like you have tape being put up everywhere, squad cars everywhere, flashing lights, like you know the whole shebang. All of this is happening. Joel Guy Jr. drives past the house. Then he turns his ass around and starts heading towards his apartment in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, without a care in the world. What the? Now... This may seem like a drastic jump into the story, but I want to go ahead and just make it clear what's happened here. Even though I know that most of you are probably already vibing with me, like telepathically or something, but (laughs) Joel Guy Jr. was in fact the one that had savagely murdered both of his parents. I'm just going to go ahead and say that now. 
as I said earlier, the minute he started acting nice to everybody and talking about staying an extra night, mm, yep. You started absorbing the vibe. I, I was absorbed. I was, listen, listen. <laughs> it hit me. It hit me. I was like, nope, mm-mm, I, I'm a head out. If you remember me saying way earlier in the story, Lisa and Joel Sr. were going to retire. They had it all planned out. But that plan, however, did not include letting their grown-ass son mooch off of them anymore. Right. They had that conversation with him earlier than originally planned around Thanksgiving. And that's when this little entitled shit stain got to planning. Because he did not like the idea of not having his parents fund literally every breath he took anymore. I obviously will get into the grim details of what Joel Jr. exactly did to his parents. But first... I want to give some some note points on some evidence that was collected against him through this investigation. And I know the format of my story is a little weird, but I'm telling you, just bear with me. There was a black notebook that was found inside of the house that belonged to Joel Guy Jr. In this notebook, there were five pages of notes in total, most of the notes containing meticulous details of how he was going to murder his parents, then set the scene up to make it look as if his father had killed his mother. Like, let that sink in. Like, he's not only going to kill the two people that have taken care of him his entire life in full, but he's also going to destroy his father's name by making it look like he had murdered his wife. Like, what a piece of shit. Well, son, you spent nine years in colleges, had nothing to show for it, but I think we found something you're good at. Yeah, being a complete (laughs) piece of shit. I'm telling you, it's awful. These notes were so detailed, so evil, so meticulously arranged, and it's sad. Like, this case is sad. I mean, clearly, we see that Joel Jr. ended up being a bumbling fucking idiot through all of this, but still, the principle remains. Right. Joel Jr.'s first plan, according to his notes, and let me say, before I even say this, like, he's a fucking man-child. Like, you can really see that here like he's immature spoiled it's evil depraved like he's just a man child wow but joel jr's first idea written in his notes was to throw something down the garbage disposal in one of the sinks like a spoon or something something to break the disposal essentially then he was going to get his dad tell him that the sink was broken then he was going to attack his father while he was kneeled down under the sink fixing it oh god After killing his dad, Joel Jr. then wrote about how the next step in his plan was to kill his mother. He was going to sneak up on her, kill her, and then somehow he was going to get his dad's DNA underneath Lisa's fingernails to, like, further prove this narrative that Joel Sr. was actually the one that murdered his wife. Isn't that just, like, despicable? What the fuck? And again, clearly, he's also a complete dumbass, but as I said earlier, like, it's the principle of all this, like... What an absolute act of betrayal and evil. Like, regardless if he fumbled his way through it or not, like, what an act. Right. And yes, I will reiterate, he fumbled his way through this like an idiot. His DNA was all over this house. Like, even though he had very specific notes in his notebook that was found on how not to do that. Gage, say it with me. Premeditated as fuck premeditated as fuck and on that point too like i was saying he had detailed notes in his notebook specifically on how not to leave dna evidence and his dna was all over this house so that's one point of like are you kidding me but then like notes dude like seriously like 
I think it would be safe to say that the crash course for not getting caught would include, I don't know, not writing your entire <laughs> plan in a notebook. Like, I don't know. I'm your just killer like, mephisto. I'm just taken back by the lack of functioning brain cells here. Like, it's seriously wow. none, even less than me and you. I literally said, <laughs> I literally said killer mephisto when I meant to say manifesto. <laughs> like, like that's, how, that's how messed up it had me just now. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's awful. Joel Guy Jr had notes on everything he had notes on how to leave the least amount of forensic evidence possible he had notes on how to dispose of his parents bodies notes on how to clean everything up just like the whole nine yards wow. he even also wrote about his plan to put the house on a timer that would be set to explode and burn down that morning what like listen like, listen. What this, in the 007? What in the 007? What I'm about <laughs> to read you uh, in regards to this whole plan, he was going to, like, blow the house up and burn it down. This is an excerpt from Joel Guy Jr.'s notes. Quote, sunlight masks fire, but not smoke. Everyone at work so they can't report it. End quote. Isn't that the dumbest shit you've ever heard in your life? One, wait, 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 wait. One more time. Just one more sunlight time. Sunlight masks fire but not smoke everyone at work so they can't report it like that is a bold assumption joel guy jr that every single person in your neighborhood what? is going to be at work what that day. in like, the ooga booga like is whole, but holy <laughs> shit but even more so let's just say that yeah every single resident of your neighborhood will be in fact at work that day let's just say that was actually a thing but Joe God Jr., do you not think that someone or anyone from anywhere would, I don't know, drive by and not notice the blazing fucking inferno that's swallowing <laughs> your parents' house because it's daytime? How stupid. Like, that just absolutely takes me back. Like this, He clearly has, like, premeditated it, but not exactly thought this out. It's stupid. Like, this little shit stain thought he was so cunning. And so brilliant for coming up with all of this. Like, he literally thought he was a mastermind. That one quote alone showed me why he never finished college. Like, right? I'm telling you, like, it is mind-blowing. That was a direct (laughs) excerpt. Sunlight masks fire, but not smoke. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. (laughs) Which, also, let me say, too, let me add, I believe the whole burning the house down idea is why he left his notebook literally at the crime scene. He set the house to 90 degrees, turned on the stove and oven, and assumed that the house, along with his notebook, would be destroyed in the fire. And you know what else that explains? Remember when I said that on Thanksgiving, Joel Guy Jr. was super stoked for family time all of a sudden? Right. And remember when I said he was taking out all of his old childhood toys and giving them to his nephews? Yeah. It wasn't out of the kindness of his heart. The prick was wanting to get all of his things out of the house so they wouldn't get burned up in the fire that he was planning to set after he killed his parents. Wow. So, this next part is just even more mind-bending, but Joel Guy Jr., with his incredible intelligence, also wrote his motive for killing his parents in this notebook as well, just in case we couldn't figure it out, you know? Uh (laughs) Joel Jr. was after his mother Lisa's life insurance money. And I'm assuming he had some prior knowledge of his mother's policy because he knew how much he would get in the event that his mother passed away. He he had a list of all possible assets he could possibly receive on top of the insurance payout if his mother died. Oh, my God. And he had a separate but similar list in regards to if his father died. He wrote in his notebook, quote, 
$500,000 would be all mine. With him missing or dead, I get the whole thing, end quote. Which, I believe Lisa's policy was set up to include both Joel Sr. and Joel Jr. Like, if something had happened to Lisa, the payout was arranged to be split 50-50 between both Joel Sr. and Joel Jr. So, Joel Jr. was saying in his statement that if his dad were out of the picture, he would get all of the money instead of just half. Joel Jr. also wrote about how he knew he had to murder Lisa before she retired in order to get this insurance payout because the policy was through her job. Which, any motive for murder is horrible. Murder of any kind is an absolute tragedy. But, like, his parents literally loved and took care of him and funded him with money and all kinds of other extravagant things his entire goddamn life, and he's going to brutally kill them for their money. Now onto the truth of things, leading up to what actually happened to Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa the Friday after Thanksgiving of 2016. I don't know if I'm ready. The last night that Joel Guy Jr. was going to spend with his parents to postpone his nine-hour drive back to Baton Rouge. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what he did at all. Oh, God. Surprise. Instead, <laughs> instead, this was his prep time. He was feeling out the perfect moment to slaughter his parents. That Friday... Lisa told both Joel Sr. and Joel Jr. that she was going to go to the grocery store to stock up on some dog food and some other stuff for the house and that she would be back in a little while. Now, this chills me to my bone and breaks my heart all at the same time, but there is actual surveillance footage, and I've seen it, that you can watch of Lisa walking out of the Walmart she went grocery shopping at that day. Like, she was walking out to go home with her groceries, not having a clue what was waiting for her. Or that that would be the last time that she would ever go anywhere. Wow. Whenever Lisa left from the house to go get groceries, Joel Sr. headed upstairs to the in-home gym that they had. I think he was going to get a workout in or whatever, whatever the case may be. But Joel Jr. waited downstairs a few minutes after his dad had went upstairs. Then he grabbed a knife and went upstairs and attacked Joel Sr. Oh, my God. Joel Jr. stabbed his dad approximately 42 times. Oh, my God. All over his body. Several of the stab wounds penetrated his lungs, his liver, and his kidneys. Joel Sr. had multiple broken ribs, as well as dozens of defensive wounds on his hands, which let me remind you from from that little discovery earlier, we know that his hands were also severed at some point during the attack. It's brutal. Joel Sr. was stabbed with so much force that a piece of the knife was broken off into and stuck in the muscle in one of his shoulders. Like, holy shit, like the muscle. Oh, my God. Now, when Lisa returned home with the groceries, it's clear by the groceries being found in the foyer during the second welfare check that she was attacked almost immediately upon entering the home. She didn't even have time to set her groceries down. Oh, my God. Lisa Guy was stabbed approximately 31 times. Some of these stab wounds penetrating her heart, both of her lungs, her aorta, her left kidney, her liver, and her third thoracic vertebrae. Some of Lisa's wounds were six to seven inches deep. Like, my God, like he did this. Joel Jr. did this to his own mother who loved him and took care of him and worked a job so he could have a paycheck. Like, I'm never going to get over that. There is so much brutality here that it just bends my brain. Like, take a deep (sighs) breath, everybody, because it's only going to get worse from here. Over the next two days, Joel Guy Jr. began the process of dismembering the bodies of his parents. Now, 
now that that little bit of context is there, I can now further explain the crime scene to you a bit. We can go back and touch on it. I know it seems like, again, I'm all over the place with this story, but I promise the information will connect and it will make sense. So, the crime scene. If you remember, Detective Jeremy McCord and Officer Stephen Ballard made a series of harrowing discoveries within the walls of the guy residence. Right. Blood splatter all over the walls, blood stains all over the upstairs carpet. The family dog had been locked in the laundry room and left to die. And a pair of severed hands, which we now know belong to Joel Guy Sr., were also found. Jeremy and Stephen ran out of the house and called for backup immediately, and several investigators, as well as the forensics unit, were dispatched to the home. This scene was so gruesome that several of the investigators were getting physically ill. Hazmat even had to be brought in at one point. What? Everyone who worked on this crime scene still states to this day that it will forever haunt them and be etched into their memories. It was so traumatic for everyone involved. Incredibly so. Space heaters were found all through the house, with each one being plugged in and turned on. Several guns were found laying on the dining room table, and boxes of ammunition were stacked up alongside the wall in the dining room. There was also gallons of bleach and boxes of bacon soda, as well as trash bags strewn all over the kitchen. Both Joel Sr.'s and Lisa's wallets were laid out on the dining room table next to a pile of cash. Do you remember... That giant soup pot that I mentioned earlier that yeah. was found on the stove. Oh my god! Don't tell me. Investigators opened me. it and found Lisa's decapitated head inside of it. Oh my god! Boiling in a chemical solution mixed with water. Oh my god! Joel Guy Jr. decapitated his mother and put her head to boil in a fucking soup pot on the stove. Oh my god! Now going into the master bedroom. Investigators noticed that the floor leading into the master bathroom as well as the bed were covered in plastic sheeting. A blender was found plugged into the wall. A yellow post-it note that was dated December 19th, 2013 was found, and it had 401k with like a monetary amount written next to it, and I kind of feel weird about telling you guys about these people's money, so I'm not going to like read exact amounts, but the note also read, quote, Hold my old dead ashes, LOL. Sprinkle us both after you pass at Buzzard's Roost by Angela. Tell all my children I love them. And as you should know, I do love you truly. I've had a blast. End quote. And it was signed by Joel Guy Sr., which this is the only instance in which this note is brought up. So I'm not sure what to make of it. Maybe it could have been a sweet gesture that Joel Sr. wrote in regards to possible plans if he passes. Like, you know, him and Lisa were retiring. Joel Sr. was 61 years old and Lisa was 55. It's not too shot out to think that maybe they had thoughts about, you know, like what they wanted to happen. Like in the event that something happened to them, you know, that's like a thought that you get. I'm not sure. But the note was found on the dresser in the master bedroom. It's also a possibility that Joel Jr. found this note from his father and and his stupid little brain thought that he could plan it at the scene as a suicide note. Like, that makes what? sense, too. What? That's a thing, too, though, because, like, no one really knows, but the note definitely does not read like a suicide note. Like, not at, at all. all. But it was planted there or found there nonetheless. Now, continuing into the master bedroom, as I said, there's plastic sheeting everywhere on the bed and leading into the master bathroom. So that's where the investigators go next. When they got into the bathroom, they found a large garden hose that was connected to where like the shower head was supposed to be. It's like the shower head had been completely removed and then replaced with a garden hose. Okay. Also in the bathroom, they found two 
45-gallon blue tubs. These were tubs filled with a water-mixed chemical solution as well as various dismembered body parts belonging to Joel Sr. and Lisa. Some of the body parts were actually broken down to almost bone due to the chemical erosion. Oh, my God. It would be found out later thanks to Joel Jr.'s fantastic handy-dandy notebook that he left for everyone to read <laughs> that he was actually dumping this solution from the tubs down the toilet as his parents' bodies started separating and decomposing. Like, as their flesh started separating from their bone, he's taking the extra fluid and putting it in the fucking toilet and flushing it. Oh, my God. Joel Guy Jr. actually wrote in his notebook that would soon be found by the investigators, quote, Use sodium hydroxide to destroy soft tissue and soften bones for transport, based once every hour to accelerate, end quote. Based? Yeah, like, holy shit. He wrote about literally basting the dismembered bodies of his parents every hour to accelerate the chemical erosion that he was hoping would destroy all of the evidence. Like, I can't. Like, this is beyond cold-hearted. This is beyond depraved. Basting his parents. Basting. After investigating the bathroom, investigators then head upstairs to the in-home gym where it was clear that Joel Sr. had been attacked. Joel Sr.'s clothes were bloody and cut up in a pile on the floor. There was a Bowflex machine that had been literally thrown over. What the hell? Yeah, Them things are fucking heavy. That, that's what I'm saying. And next to that machine was where Joel Sr.'s severed hands had been found. In the oh. corner of the room, there was an insane amount of blood all over the walls and floor. It's obvious that that's where Joel Sr. had been killed. Clear signs of a violent struggle. In one of the spare bedrooms that was investigated... After the exercise room, there was a few boxes of ammunition found on a dresser, along with a gallon container of bleach or some other chemical. That container was stained with coagulated blood. There was also a laptop opened on the bed that was connected to some sort of external hard drive, and next to the bed, in the corner, was a red burgundy-colored backpack. Investigators opened up this backpack, and they found several books that had Joel Guy Jr. written on them. There was also a printout of, like, the mechanical workings of a water heater. And, of course, the famous handy-dandy black notebook of Joel Jr.'s that we've been talking about was also found in this backpack. Which, again, that notebook in particular had five extremely detailed pages of why and how he was going to savagely murder his parents. God. So at this point, an investigator had already kind of spoken to one of Joel Sr.'s daughters. If you remember me saying... Joel's daughters were also worried during the time that Lisa's boss, Jennifer, right. was trying to get a hold of them because, you know, they had been trying to get a hold of their dad all day and they couldn't. Right. It turns out, too, as sad as it is, that the Sunday before Joel Sr. and Lisa were found, it was actually one of his daughter's birthdays. And that's just sad. Like, can you imagine? Oh, my God. Can you imagine the heartbreak that she had to deal with of not only not hearing from her dad on her birthday, because that's obviously way out of character for him. That probably had panic that came with it. Then to find out, like, not long after that, that the reason you didn't hear from your dad was because your stepbrother had brutally murdered them. Yeah. I couldn't imagine that. The daughter that investigators were able to talk to told them that the last person in the house with her parents was their son and her stepbrother, Joel Guy Jr. And that connected all of, you know, the, the contents of the backpack that they found, yeah. Joel Jr.'s name being written all over the fucking crime, his DNA being everywhere, like, my brain, like, all of this connected. Right. And now, with all of this evidence collected, 
they were ready to track this motherfucker down. Right. The investigators teamed up with the FBI and started pulling surveillance footage from various different stores in the area in the days before the murders. Joel Guy Jr. was caught on surveillance cam at a Walmart buying a bleach sprayer, multiple boxes of Band-Aids, rubbing alcohol, and some antibiotic treatments for the wounds he had sustained during the murders on his hands. Uh, Yeah, well, I hope it gets infected, Yeah, no shit. He was also caught buying those two huge blue 45-gallon tubs that he would later use to put his dismembered parents in. Oh, God. Joel, Joel had bought... All of this two or three days before the murders. And this is extremely, just extremely fucked up to me. But Joel Guy Jr. actually had one of those 45-gallon tubs in the back of his car at the family Thanksgiving dinner. One of his stepsisters actually saw the tub and had no idea what it was going to be used for. Oh, my God. Like, it was right there in front of her. Like... I can't even begin to try to wrap my mind around that. Like, the depravity of this crime is truly incomprehensible. Yeah. So, investigators have collected overwhelming evidence. They're now ready to go after Joel Guy Jr. As I said, they're ready to track him down. They found out that he had already gotten back to his apartment in Baton Rouge. After the murders, he actually went all the way back to Louisiana and had his hands treated at a student care center. Then he came back to his parents' house, and that was when he had realized that the crime scene had been discovered. You know, all the chaos with the forensics and the cops being everywhere. That was the moment I mentioned earlier where he drove past the house, saw what was going on, then turned his ass back around and went back to Louisiana. Right. So he was on the move. So detectives were immediately dispatched to Baton Rouge with specific orders to arrest his ass for murder the second they found him. When authorities got to Joel Jr.'s apartment, he was actually getting into his Hyundai Sonata and he was immediately apprehended, which I found that to be like one of those ew moments because like... I know you remember, but I used to have a Hyundai Sonata. Yeah. And it's not that they're bad cars or anything because, like, they're totally not. But it's like, I don't want to have the same anything as you, Joel Jr. (laughs) Definitely fucking not. So, thanks. You know, you ruined the memories of my Hyundai Sonata for me. I appreciate it. (laughs) After he was arrested, detectives searched Joel Jr.'s car and they found a gas container and a kitchen aid that had a meat grinding attachment on it. And this was obvious to police. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. It was obvious to police what this grinder was because Joel Jr. had written in his notebook about how he needed to, quote, bring meat grinder to grind meat, end quote. Oh, my God. The grinder that he literally used on his parents was in his car when he got arrested. Oh, When they searched Joel Jr.'s apartment, they found a bluish, like, chemical liquid in the tub, and the tub had a bone in it. Ugh. It kind of makes you think if he was maybe trying to experiment to see how fast he could deteriorate a bone. Like, it's, it's, it's so fucked. Joel Guy Jr.'s trial actually took four years to start. It finally began in September of 2020. There were over 700 pieces of evidence in total that was being used against him. And I believe there was also maybe 26 to 27 witnesses in total as well. Hmm. Joel Jr. actually filed a motion to the courts asking if he could represent himself at his trial two days before the trial was supposed to begin with their proceedings. Okay. So he's been like a major (laughs) shithead from the start of all this. Okay. He was doing this because he was requesting literally to be put to death if he was convicted. Like, it's crazy. Like, he blows, like, his entitledness blows my mind two days before his trial starts he's like actually i would just like to represent myself because if you guys find me guilty i just want to die 
Like, what the fuck? Another little note to show how much of an entitled asswipe Joel Guy Jr. is. He wrote a letter to the judge overseeing the case, Judge Steve Sword, saying that he, quote, had permission to execute him if he were convicted. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, what's the judge's name? Steve Sword. So is he going to live or die by the sword? It would seem so. <laughs> it would seem so. Either way, Joel Guy Jr. literally writes a letter to him just saying, oh, by the way, you totally have my permission to execute me if I'm convicted. Just so you know. <laughs> the like, I give you full consent. <laughs> like, yeah, like full permission. Like, if that doesn't already make your brain just want to explode... What? then this next tidbit definitely will. I think I'm mostly cracking jokes and laughing because anxiety. Yeah, it's crazy that this is the way this kid thinks. Like, literally tells the judge when he's in court for brutally slaughtering and dismembering his parents. Oh, by the way, FYI, um, (laughs) just in case you're wondering, I totally, like, it's okay if you want to kill me, if you convict me, because that's what I want to happen. Like, it's all about my comfort, you know. Fuck jail, just kill me. So it just makes no sense, like... If that doesn't make your brain, like, want to explode, like I said, the next bit's going to. Oh, it's so bad. In in the beginning phases of the trial, (laughs) Joel Guy Jr. voiced that his main concern was wondering if he was still entitled to his mother Lisa's life insurance payout. Sir, you're done. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Sit down. You're done. Nope. No, sir. Like, my brain cannot. (laughs) I cannot process. Absolutely not. And Joel Jr. was told that he didn't have any rights to any of the money due to a little something called the Slayer Rule. Now, I am no expert with life insurance. I think it's all confusing as hell to navigate, but it turns out that there actually is a specific rule with life insurance that specifically covers what would happen in a scenario in which someone was trying to obtain the payout of a relative Mm -hmm. by murdering them. Yeah, that actually, that was put into place because, like, it was such a common thing where family members were killing off their other family members in order to inherit their money. Yeah, that's... Because they were the beneficiary. Yeah. So they actually had to put that into place, and that's sad. Like, yeah, how like often that, that happened. That totally makes sense. It's just crazy to me because I literally did not learn that until I started researching this case. So... It's just wild to me that there actually was a specific rule that covers that. I just thought it was cool. So for those of you that aren't familiar with it, the Slayer rule states, quote, a common law doctrine that prohibits a murderer from inheriting any portion of the victim's insurance policy payout, even if said murderer also happens to be the beneficiary, end quote. And this rule also covers, like, if you kill the next in line to said inheritance, like, for example, let's say that Lisa died of natural causes. As I was saying earlier, that would mean that her payout would be split 50-50 between her husband and her son. So if Lisa had died naturally, but then her son killed his father to get all of the money instead of half, he still wouldn't be entitled to any of it due to the Slayer rule. Right. So it covers that, too. So he's just like shit out of luck. Like, I seriously cannot comprehend in any way that Joel Jr. was thinking all of this. Like, I seriously can't comprehend any logic or anything behind this. Like, he's literally at trial for viciously killing his parents, and he's going to ask, oh, by the way, that check that I wanted, like, do I still get it? Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, that's nuts. And then you have this other side of the fence where Joel Jr.'s poor stepsisters, 
they're having to not only grieve the loss of their dad and a woman who had quite literally became a second mother to them, but they're also having to be dragged through a murder trial, a trial in which no one should have to endure. And they're having to work with their own lawyers to ensure that their stepbrother doesn't receive a dime of money from the parents that he literally slaughtered. Like my heart, like I can't, like I can't. Wow. The medical examiner that spoke on the stand at Joel Jr.'s trial stated that this case examination was incredibly hard for her to work on. It was traumatizing. Now, if you don't want to hear this next part, because I'm going to be reading the uh, medical examiner's report, I urge you to skip forward because it's about to get graphic. Uh, Her report reads as follows. Joel Guy Sr.'s arms were removed at the shoulders, his legs at the hip joints, hands at the wrist. His head was completely skeletal at this point, and the damage to the forehead area was so severe that it was hard to differentiate the cause of injury. It was unclear if it was blunt force trauma or chemical erosion. In documenting the wounds, I have to give the number of wounds as an at least. There was so much damage to the tissue that it was exceedingly difficult to tell how many exact wounds were present. Even some of Mr. Guy's arms were down to the bone, and the bone had begun to dissolve. So she's saying that she couldn't even get an actual reading on how many wounds there were. That's how insanely brutal these murders were. Like the depravity is insane. She also went on to state that what was left of the tissue all across Joel Guy Sr.'s back had sustained approximately 34 sharp force injuries, which meaning stabs or cuts. Some of these wounds were six to seven inches deep. And through all of this being read aloud to the court, Joel Jr. did not shed one tear. Like, literally, he showed nothing. No remorse. Wow. And then the medical examiner goes into describing Lisa's injuries. She stated that, quote, Lisa's legs were cut off at the knees. Her arms were cut off at the shoulders. Lisa had been violently decapitated, with her head being thrown into a soup pot on the stove to boil. Lisa's body had a total of 24 sharp force injuries, end quote. I couldn't find his name, but there was also a forensic anthropologist from the University of Tennessee that testified at Joel Jr.'s trial, and he went into great detail about how much effort and work this act would have taken. He testified how much time it would take and just how incredibly difficult it would be to disarticulate a human body at the joints. And again, Joel Guy Jr. did all of this to his parents. Oh, my God. Like, it is beyond. It is truly beyond. I'm so messed up over that. Wow. Yeah, no, it's bad. There was also some evidence presented at the trial that implied that Joel Jr. had been planning these murders a good bit of time before Thanksgiving, actually as early as November 7th, 2016. So again, premeditated as fuck. Joel's defense team argued against this evidence saying that, quote, there is room here for reasonable doubt. Get the fuck out of here. Like, no, there's not. Get out like, of here. There is not. This kid had a notebook literally talking about all of this in morbid detail, like how he was going to kill and dismember his parents. Like, there is how? no room for reasonable doubt there. Like, that's absurd this, to me. Oh, my God. I think they're reaching at that point. They're just reaching. I mean, the defense attorney, they they had their job cut out for them. That's all I'm I saying. Mean, I'm like, I couldn't to, I'm imagine. I'm trying to tell you. Anywho, Joel Guy Jr.'s trial lasted a total of only four days. On October 2nd, 2020, Joel Jr. was found guilty on two charges of premeditated first-degree murder, three counts of felony murder, and two counts of abuse of a corpse. Now, while awaiting... Oh my God, that's a charge? Yes. It definitely is. Wow. (laughs) Okay. 
Now, while awaiting sentencing just a few days after his conviction, he actually pulled one last stunt. And this shit, I'm telling you, like, what an entitled brat. Like, he got the notion in his mind that he didn't want to share a cell with another person. It wasn't comfortable enough for him. <laughs> what? Yeah, so he asked to be in solitary confinement, saying he'd be much happier that way. It's like a really badly written episode of Law & Order. Like, <laughs> right? What? Which, again, you butchered and dismembered your parents. Like, how in the fuck do you think that any of this revolves around how comfortable you are? Like, I don't understand that at all, but... The, the, the kicker here with what I'm saying is he wrote a letter to the Tennessee Department of Corrections asking if he could be placed in solitary confinement. And I actually want to read this letter to you guys real oh quick because it's insane. Here we go. And I'm also going to be posting a picture of this letter on our Instagram when we upload this episode. So be sure to check that out. But anywho, this letter reads as follows. This was a bad idea. <laughs> 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 this oh. this was a bad idea i am psychologically unstable <laughs> i'm having fantasies of using my fingers to gouge this gentleman's eyes out of his head while he's unconscious and therefore wouldn't be able to defend himself given that in these fantasies it is essential that i use my fingers a no sharps restriction will accomplish nothing to deter my thoughts. I'm writing this letter because I don't want to end up with a disciplinary infraction or worse, more criminal charges, nor do I logically believe that this gentleman deserves to be blind. I don't know what to do. I shouldn't be allowed access to another person while they're unconscious. This was a bad, bad idea. Please stop me. Please stop me from acting on my fantasies. Thanks, Joel Guy Jr. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, like dead ass, that's what he wrote. What killed me was is I was expecting I'm like, okay, he's somewhat educated. No. Right? I was I was expecting no, this very deep thought out letter. You had the, false hope. But, <laughs> but the minute you were like, This is a bad idea, I just I lost no, it. No, I'm telling you, like I like I said, I'm gonna be posting a picture because it was a handwritten letter. I'm posting the picture on our Instagram, so if you want to go read it, you can. That's but that's literally insane. that is literally the first sentence. This was a bad idea. <laughs> that think? is literally the first sentence. You think Captain Obvious. Now, this letter did nothing for Joel Jr. Instead, it was actually cited by the judge at his sentencing trial, along with the implementation that he served his time concurrently. Oh my God. So, like, yeah, this did nothing at all for him. Like, they were just pretty much like, dude, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is <laughs> this is what you're concerned with. At Joel Jr.'s sentencing trial, the judge stated that he doubted that the depravity of Joel Jr.'s mind would change over any period of time. Joel was then sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole until he has served a minimum of 130 years. And that concludes the very brutal case of Joel and Lisa Guy. <sighs> yeah. I, I, I like it's a sad it's one. It's a very serious and sad event that happened. And, you know, my heart goes out to the families. 
I'm merely laughing out of how stupid this guy is. Yeah, no shit. Like and, that's that's something and to laugh at. The other at. half is like anxiety laughing as well because it's just like <laughs> this is such a gruesome story. Where do I even begin to know what I'm supposed to be feeling? Yeah. And it was just And at the end of it we can kind of boil it down to like in a sentence this little entitled brat. You said boil it down. I hate you. Boil it. Oh, <laughs> I didn't even realize that I did that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. My puns get the best of me again, it seems. It's time for us to get off here and go play Animal Crossing. It is definitely time for us to get off of here. As usual, we really appreciate you guys listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's case. As we said in the beginning, tune in next Thursday for a revisit and re-upload of the Kendrick case. So, yes. you know, y'all have that to look forward to. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird on any of our social media platforms, then you can do so. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram. At Gore Report Podcast. And Twitter. At Gore Report. Okay, time to go cry and watch cartoons or whatever we need to do to get this off our minds. Okay, we love you. <laughs> love you. Bye. 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 Are you afraid? You shut me. You bless me.